0: You may be seated. Congregation, please open your Bibles with me to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7, a prophet certainly that uh, doesn't receive enough attention from the pulpit or, or often in our readings, is absolutely important to read. So we turn to Amos chapter 7. This morning we will be reading from verse 1 through 9, and in the evening we will be reading from the same chapter from verse 10 through 17. Amos chapter 7, verse 1 through 9, and as you open your Bible, simply a little bit of context. At this time, Israel is a nation divided. God's people are divided into two people the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And Amos, a man from the south, from Judah, is called by the Lord to preach to the people of the north, of Israel. And he has received, at this point, very little interest in the words he's been preaching. God has not, or God has been speaking through Amos, but the people of Israel have not been listening. To return now to verse 1 through 9, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what He showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in His hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of My people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that You would open our eyes the reading of Your Word this morning, that You would open our ears to hear the news of Your wrath and of Your mercy, that You would open our hearts to receive what You have for us in this passage. We pray, Lord, that we would listen carefully, eagerly. This passage before us this morning, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever someone wants to get a point across in a very simple and direct way, very often they'll use an image. And this is especially true when the image or the, the point they're trying to get across is a difficult point or when the person is just not getting what you're trying to teach them and this is true in a wide variety of circumstances teachers for instance will often give images or stories or illustrations to their children their students they'll give science experiments so that the children can see exactly what they're teaching Similarly, a salesperson might in order to show his product, take out the product and demonstrate how it can be useful in a very visual way. Pastors likewise often use illustrations to try and and explain what they're getting at to the people. Something that happens all the time. Images, they get the point across. Especially when people just aren't understanding it. Well, brothers and sisters, by the time we arrive at chapter 7 of the book of Amos, God has been warning the people of Israel for some time about a coming destruction, about his coming judgment. If you were to look back on the book of Amos for a moment, congregation, you would see that this is the case where God warns the people, telling them destruction is coming. In chapter 1 and 2, Amos begins by going out and preaching judgment on the nations surrounding Israel. And each time as he goes from nation to nation, he brings the circle a little closer until he comes to Israel itself. And he says, you're no better than the other nations. Therefore, you'll be destroyed. In chapter 3, Israel clearly rejects God's message. And God responds by portraying Himself as a lion who will tear Israel apart. He says, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued was the corner of a couch and part of a bed. In chapter 4, Israel continues with their stubbornness and God reminds them of no fewer than five sets of punishments He's brought upon them in the past. And after each, He says, still you did not return to Me. In chapter 5, He continues with the same. He sings... A death song. A song as if he was singing at a funeral. We could continue, but I think you get the the image here. God, through the mouth of Amos, has taken tack after tack, attempt after attempt, to shake Israel awake. To say, do you not see that you're perishing? Do you not see that unless you repent, judgment is coming? Yet Israel continues to not get the point. They don't get the picture. They have, at this point, cut themselves off from all faithful worship. They've left the only place God commanded them to worship in Jerusalem. Instead, they have joined themselves with priests at Bethel, at Gilgal, worshiping God falsely. Again, they had cut themselves off from their proper king. The house of David. The line of the promised Christ. Instead, they followed a rebellious king and they worshipped God falsely. Despite this, despite all the messages that God had brought to them, they were self-satisfied, self-confident, they believed that God must be happy with them. They believed that God was content. And so, congregation, in the passage before us this morning, God pursues a slightly different strategy. God gives Amos not one, not two, but three visions. Striking images. And these images portray two Opposite, yet joined principles. These three visions display, on the one hand, God's wrath, His judgment against the people of Israel for their continued rebellion, for their idolatry. And on the other hand, He displays through Amos His mercy, His kindness, and his care to those who repent. That's what we'll be studying this morning, congregation. God's judgment and God's mercy. His wrath and His love. As we examine these, congregation, I want you not only to think of what Amos was preaching to the people of Israel as if it was something that happened years ago, rather, congregation, as we study this passage, consider your hearts. I think you'll find that the people of our day are not so different from the people in Amos' day. We begin by examining Amos, uh, God's judgment. We begin by examining God's judgment. Congregation, the Israel of Amos' day did not want to accept or consider God's judgment. They were at ease in their houses and in their palaces. But in contrast to Israel's belief that they were doing just fine, God wanted them to understand the depths of His wrath. As a result, every one of these three visions is calculated to demonstrate God's judgment on the people. They're terrifying visions. Take a look At them for a moment with me. In the first vision, verse 1 through 3, Amos sees that God is about to destroy the nation with a plague of locusts. Verse 1 says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Most of you have certainly seen locusts before, or pictures at least. They're very large grasshoppers. One locust, of course, is not dangerous, but they never come alone. They come in swarms, in droves. They eat everything there is to eat in the land. Anything that's green, anything that's living, anything that's growing. Every plant they find, they demolish. Leaving the land barren of any food. And in this vision congregation, these locusts that God sends come at the worst possible time. They come in the spring when the most crucial harvest is coming. In Israel, you have rain from around November to sometime in March. And during this time is when most of the planting happens. It seems as though these locusts come in the early spring, after the earliest harvest, the harvest that was most likely dedicated as a tax to the king. The people know that they need this food. For the people to survive, they need this second crop for themselves. If the locusts ate the crop, it would have meant starvation for the people of Israel. Thousands upon thousands would have died. But Amos cries out to the Lord in a plea for mercy. And God stays his hand. He'll not allow Israel as a whole to be destroyed. Again, if we continue on to the second vision in verse four through six, the same basic message is given, but even more strikingly, Amos sees that God is about to destroy the nation not with locusts in the spring, but this time with fire, with heat. Some commentators believe sometime in the summer. Listen to the words of verse four. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. This image that Amos gives, or God gives rather, is a striking one, but it's it's not a new one to the people of Israel. Israel had heard this judgment proclaimed against them before. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses was about to die, he began to warn the people of what would happen if they were idolatrous. If they turned away from God. And listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. God says, "...a fire is kindled in My anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains." That's exactly what's going on in Amos' vision. The people of Israel had rejected God, and God was about to consume them. What a terrible image of God's wrath, congregation. All the nation burned in a terrible fire. Certainly, wouldn't you say that this fire is even worse than the locusts? But again, Amos cries out to the Lord and pleads for God to stay His hand. And because of Amos' prayer, God holds back the destruction of Israel as a whole and doesn't let it happen. But the third vision, It's very different from the first two, and in many ways worse still. Listen to what God says in verse 7 through 8. This is what He showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in His hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Brothers and sisters, this third vision may initially seem to be far less terrifying than the other two. The picture here is that of God standing by a wall with a plumb line in His hand. Now, little children... A plumb line is a small piece of metal that you tie to a string and you set it in your hand and because the metal is heavy, it goes straight up and down. A plumb line is used or was used at least in Amos' day for construction workers in order to make sure that what they were building was perfectly straight perfectly perpendicular to the ground, perfectly up and down. They would hold this plumb line and the string in their hand. They would examine the walls that they were building. They would make certain it was perfect. If the wall was sagging, then they had to tear down the wall and build a new one. In this image, God is standing on, or better translated, beside a wall. This wall... Is an image of the people of Israel. God is about to use His justice, His measure, His plumb line, in order to set it against the people of Israel. He is about to take His law and examine the people of Israel. If the people of Israel are not righteous, then just like a construction worker destroys a sagging wall, God will demolish Israel brick by brick, person by person until nothing is left. Brothers and sisters, God gave these three images to the people of Israel as warnings. He wanted them to understand His character, His wrath, His coming judgment, Examine with me, if you will, what these visions reveal to us about God's judgment. First, these visions show that God's judgment is powerful. It's powerful. The visions described here are visions which strike at the very heart of the lives of the people of Israel. In the first vision, God's wrath was prepared to condemn them to starvation. In the second vision, His wrath was prepared to condemn them to be burned up. In the third vision, God promised He was about to judge them according to His law. And none could stand. And even though God held back His wrath because of Amos' prayers, nonetheless, God uses these images to show us and the people of Israel that sin is no small matter to Him. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners of a ha- in the Hands of an Angry God, speaks of God's wrath against the unbeliever as a flood that's dammed up, held back, but at every moment it grows greater and greater. One day it will break out. God's wrath is not to be trifled with. That's the sort of thing that God is revealing to us in this passage today. God holds back His wrath. But when Amos cries to the Lord to stay His hand, Amos is only able to forestall it. Each time his wrath grows greater and greater. Congregation, compare this passage with the life of the church today. Often in the church, the world downplays God's wrath. The idea of hell and of God's judgment is something that's talked about less and less in the modern church. At the very best, hell has been relegated to a minor corner of most of the church's theology. If pressed, many people in the church may admit that hell exists, but so many in our churches ignore it for the most part. They think that well, God only condemns the very worst of the worst. Hitler and Stalin and people like that to hell. Well, it's true that God condemns only the worst of the worst, but the fact of the matter is, congregation, that we are all the worst of the worst. God's wrath is not to be trifled with. God's wrath is not less than it was in the days of Amos. Do you, dear church member, think little of God's wrath? Do you imagine that God is not angry at every moment with our sin? God's wrath is powerful. It calls aloud for judgment simply because you're a member of a church or you grew up in a church or your parents grew up in a church, or your grandparents grew up in a church, simply because these things may be true, does not mean that God's wrath against you is any less. These things in themselves cannot save us from God's judgment. More than that, congregation, this passage reveals to us that God's judgment is active. In Amos' day, Israel refused to believe this. They imagined God to be a vaguely nice being. Some might say a sky daddy who simply wants you to have whatever you want. Any calamity that Israel faced certainly couldn't have come from God's hand. That's not what we see described here. Quite the opposite. It's God who forms the locusts. This word translated here as forming is the exact same word God uses in Genesis 2 to describe how God formed man out of the ground. It's a very active word that God forms these locusts as it were with His own hands. Sends them out to destroy the people of Israel. Likewise, God calls to the fire to contend against the people of Israel, to judge the people of Israel. The picture God wants to get across is that God is actively involved with the punishment of the people of Israel. And in our day, the church can be a lot like the people of Israel. It's common for us to put the blame for disaster on other things. So many people like to think of God's wrath as something distant. We don't like to see calamities in this world or in the next, especially in the next, as evidence of the wrath of God. We don't like to think of hell as something that God carries out. We need to be aware, congregation, that God is actively involved in both judging and punishing those who rebel against Him. In the third vision, God Himself examines the people. He sets His law by His hand against them. And when they are found wanting, He tears them down. This passage shows us that every punishment which the unbeliever faces in this life and in the next is a punishment that comes from God's hand. Does this mean that every difficulty we face in this life is a punishment? Certainly not. But what it does say is that we ought to treat God's wrath as a serious thing. It's not something that's distant. God actively hates sin. Finally, congregation, the vision of the plumb line tells us that God's judgment is perfectly just. It's perfectly just. In the vision of the plumb line, God holds His standard of the law against the people. He judges His perfection against their lives. He built them up using the law. And now He was about to tear them down according to it. Israel couldn't complain that God was unjust in what He did. They couldn't imagine that God was wrathful against them for no reason. No, it was His law set against them The perfect measure of His justice. The northern kingdom of Israel had ignored God's law. Throughout the book of Amos, God speaks of the people of Israel in various terms. He uses these sorts of adjectives. He calls them greedy, lustful, ungrateful, stubborn, violent, thieving, oppressive, and above all, idolatrous. God was prepared to judge them according to exactly what they had done. Congregation, consider your sin in the light of these visions. Don't mislead yourself. Don't be like the people of Israel who refuse to listen to God. Don't think little of God's justice. You may be a long-standing member of this church. You may have even been baptized in this church. But in the end, God does not judge you according to these things. These things themselves are not guarantees of freedom from God's wrath against sin. The people of Israel had dozens of excuses as to why God must love them. But none of these things stopped them from judgment. In the end, not even Amos, this great prophet, was able to fully stop God's wrath. He was only able to forestall it. To pause it for a moment. So congregation, examine your hearts. Lay the plumb line of God's Word against your lives. How do you stack up against the law of God? Do you worship God in true faith and repentance from your sins? You have Christ as ruler, as Savior of your life. If you truly examine your lives, congregation, I'm certain that none of us stands up to the law of God. If that were the end of the story, we would be without hope. But congregation, God doesn't just reveal His judgment in these passages. He doesn't just reveal His wrath. He also reveals something else. He shows us His mercy. And this is what we come to next congregation is God's mercy. God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, God is wrathful against sin. But He's also a kind and a merciful God. Even in the moments when He is at His most wrathful, yet He does not forget His care toward those who trust Him. We see that in this passage, and especially in the first two visions. Look with me at verse 2 through 3. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Again, in verse 5 through 6. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God." In both of these passages, God forestalls his destruction. Once again, congregation, God would have us learn certain lessons. Just like a teacher uses images to get his or her point across, So, too, God uses these visions and Amos' response to them to teach something to us. He wants us to read these visions and see that God is indeed merciful. He wants to teach us about his mercy. Congregation, first brothers and sisters, God's mercy is completely undeserved. It's completely undeserved. When Amos pleads for God to stop, he doesn't argue that the people of Israel deserve to be rescued. He doesn't argue that what God is doing is wrong or unjust. No. Instead, he speaks of Israel's smallness, their weakness, their poverty. Though Israel believed themselves to be strong and powerful and great, Amos saw them for what they truly were. Weak, stiff-hearted, unable to do anything in their own right. Just as we read earlier this morning from Moses when he cast himself down and said, Be with us, for it is a stiff-necked people. So too, Amos saw that the people of Israel were small. Weak, unable to do anything by themselves. He looks at their true state. He sees how weak they really are. He pleads on their behalf. He cries out to the Lord, please stop. Please forgive. He says, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. it's this weakness that stays God's hand. Congregation, you and I, in the same way, if we receive mercy from God, it's not because we're deserving of mercy. It's not as though God looked down upon us and said, this one is worthy. It's not as though God looked upon us and saw us as if we were able to do what He requires. Of course not. That would be, in fact, a denial of the meaning of the word mercy. Mercy is that God does not punish us according to what we deserve. God doesn't save us because we deserve it. He doesn't save us because we're strong or holy or wise in ourselves. God saves the believer precisely because he is weak. Are you weak, friend? do you see that there is nothing in you that is good? Do you place yourself beside God's plumb line, His law, and recognize that you are crooked in yourself? Or if you don't, you're lying to yourself. 1 John chapter 1 says, If we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. God saves the believer because he is weak, not because he is strong. Second, however, and this is incredibly important for our understanding of the passage, so listen very carefully, God's mercy comes through a mediator. God's mercy comes through a mediator. In both the first and the second vision, God is prepared to destroy the people. The people are able to do nothing to stop His wrath. But one man, a man appointed, elected, chosen, and anointed to stand between God and the people, pleads on their behalf. This man cries out, Lord, stop. Please forgive. And it's because of this mediator, the words of this prophet, which put a stop to God's punishment. It's this man, this mediator, which forestalls God's destructive wrath. So God stays His hand. He says, this punishment shall not be. He declares, although Israel deserves to be destroyed, I will not destroy them in this way. Congregation Amos is not the only prophet to act in this way. Although it was generally the task of the anointed priest to represent God before the people, or rather the people before God, the prophets were also tasked with this. It was the prophet's job not only to speak from God to the people, but to pray and to intercede for the people. Genesis 20 reveals this to us. God tells Abimelech to go to Abraham saying essentially, he is a prophet. He will pray for you. This is something that holds true throughout Scripture. Moses often prayed for the people as we saw earlier this morning when he fell before God and said, please be with us for it is a stiff night people. Habakkuk pleaded before God for his people. David likewise prayed for the people. In fact, every prophet in the Old Testament was tasked with praying for the people they ministered to. It was part of their job. But brothers and sisters, every prophet points to something much greater. Amos was a prophet of God. It's true. He was one of the people tasked with bringing God's Word to the people and with interceding for the people. But Jesus Christ is the prophet. Amos here stands as what we might call a type of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ intercedes, Amos interceded. The congregation. There are so many differences between Amos and Jesus. Amos stands between man and God as a mediator. But Amos' prayer, though it was powerful, is nothing compared to Christ. Christ prays for His people. Christ is the better and the greater Amos. Compare God's mercy in this prophecy because of Amos to God's mercy because of Christ. You will find that Christ is the greater mediator in every way. Amos prayed for God's people, but Christ prays not only for His people, but He does so Continually, non-stop, interceding in the throne room before God Himself. He is before God, moment by moment in the throne room, praying for every believer. Again, Amos offered prayers for mercy. But Christ offers not only prayers for mercy, but he offers himself as satisfaction. Amos was able briefly to pause, to stop, to forestall God's wrath. But Jesus Christ, when He comes before the Lord, He doesn't come and simply say, please forgive. No, He comes with Himself covered in blood, in His wounds, and says, look what I have done for the people. Stop your wrath. Let it be expiated on My behalf. See My sacrifice. He did something Amos could never do. And because of this congregation, while Amos' prayers could only forestall God's wrath, Jesus' blood, Jesus' prayers, Jesus' death. They made an end to God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, if this is true, compare your lives once more to the lives of the people of Israel. Are you self-satisfied? Do you believe that somehow you can make it on your own? Do you somehow think that you can stop God's wrath and His judgment? Why would you think something like that? Do you not see that the law is set against you as a plumb line? That your crookedness demands destruction? Congregation, there's nothing in all the world save Christ, the perfect Amos, who can stop God's wrath. But on the other hand, if you cling to this knowledge that you are undeserving of your salvation, if you repent from your sin according to the law that God has set against your life, if you look to Christ and to Christ our mediator alone, there's forgiveness and freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the judgment that is upon the wicked. That plumb line which once promised destruction instead promises mercy. The law which once promised our death, fulfilled in Christ, promises a full and free inheritance. We have the promise, congregation, that God's wrath and His judgment is satisfied in the mercy through Christ and Christ alone, the greater amen amen let's pray Lord God we